Seven years ago, everything changed. Seven years ago, the world got its first taste of nuclear warfare. Wars have been going on forever, and in that sense, World War II wasn't all that different. But with the advent of nuclear weapons, everything changed. Upon entering the nuclear age, humanity got its first glimpse of how the world might actually end. Before, the concept of humanity's extinction wasn't really in our social consciousness, but since then, our society has been captivated with thoughts about how the world might end. Now the end of the world seems to most people a total plausibility. It's not a matter of if it will end, but simply when and how. Along those lines, it's no coincidence that starting in the 1960s, there's been an explosion of apocalyptic-themed movies, which reflect how our society is thinking and feeling. For example, in 1964, the movie Dr. Strangelove came out, which depicts a rogue U.S. general who launches a first-strike nuclear attack on the Soviet Union by himself, And all of the bombers are recalled except one, and the bomb drops, the Soviets retaliate, the U.S. counter-retaliates, and the world is over. You may also remember the 1968 famous film, The Planet of the Apes, which tells of the Earth many years from now, and it's been wiped out by nuclear weapons, and all the humans are gone, and the apes have risen up to rule the world. Movies like these have been successful because they capture the imaginations and the fears of our Society. Again, most people believe the world will end sooner rather than later. And with a strange fascination, we love to watch all these different depictions of how it all might go down. In the late 90s, saw another flurry of apocalyptic movies. You have the end of the millennium right around the corner. And remember all that Y2K business? So people thought that they speculated the end might be near. So for example, in 1998, the movie Deep Impact came out which featured this this teenager discovering a a comet on collision course with Earth, is seven miles long, enough to cause global extinction. It was diverted in the end, but not before. Part of it struck the Atlantic Ocean, created a tsunami that just destroyed the whole East Coast. And funny enough, in the same year, another movie, almost the same movie came out called Armageddon. It featured another rogue asteroid on collision course with Earth, Eventually, this asteroid was likewise blown up, but not before it, too, had fragments that struck the Earth, and Shanghai and and Paris were totally obliterated in this movie before everyone else was saved. And, of course, you could tell of many more movies. I think hundreds of movies like these have been made the past 50, 60 years with similar themes. It's interesting, though, how some of these movies like to draw on biblical teaching or biblical themes for some of their storylines or plot lines. For example, that movie Armageddon gets its title from Revelation 16, the the battle at Armageddon. Armageddon is actually a place, the plains of Megiddo, and it refers to this place where this great final battle takes place before Christ returns. Of course, the Hollywood movie by the same name has nothing to do with any of that. It just draws on the name and some of the themes. Apocalyptic movies never quite get it right when it comes to the Bible. When it's convenient, they'll draw off biblical themes, but you'll never see a Hollywood movie faithfully depict what the Bible really says about the end, right? And you know why that is? It's because the Bible is not very politically correct. And what the Bible says about the end of the age, it's actually quite an offensive message to those who are living in the world. Because the end actually comes for a reason. The end comes as judgment. See, in Hollywood, whenever the world ends in one of these movies, the culprit is always some inanimate object, some random neutral event, like an asteroid. The asteroid is neither good nor bad, and it doesn't target people for any reason. It just comes by chance, and people sadly die. But in Scripture, the end is much different. The end is not random, but on purpose. It's not by chance, but from God's own hand. And it's not impartial. It comes as a deliberate act of judgment. According to scripture, when the end comes, it's God's holy wrath finally being poured out in a world full of rebellious sinners. It's a time of retribution where all wrongdoers are finally punished and those who know God are finally rescued. And that being the case, you can can see why those in the world, they don't want to tell that story because they would be self-condemned. Those who are living in and for sin, they don't want to hear about the coming judgment on them for their sin. It's, it's, it's a buzzkill. It's frightening. It's offensive. So they tune it out 
or they rewrite it into something a little more, more palatable for the, the common man, the natural mind. But you don't want to make that same mistake. You don't want to tune out what the Bible really says about the end and why the end comes. God has revealed the end as a warning. You are meant to learn what is to come. You are meant to take heed of the coming wrath against sin so that you might turn, turn away from your sin, seek refuge in God through Christ, that you might be spared from the wrath to come. Only after you are thoroughly convinced that a flood is coming, will you leave the world behind and run into the ark. And that, that's the point. That's why God in Scripture tells about the coming end. It's a warning. A flood of God's wrath is coming, but he tells you in advance that you might be warned and that you might be saved. Be convicted of your sin and therefore run to Christ, the Savior, the one who died on the cross and rose from the dead in order to pay the penalty for your sin to save you from the, the wrath to come. Through him you can be reconciled to God. You can pass out of God's judgment and by grace into God's blessing simply through your faith in him, by following him. That's the ultimate good news. But that can only be accepted by those who have first come to terms with the ultimate bad news. And that is the coming judgment on sin for all who reject God and the gospel. And if you can understand all this, then you can understand the spirit in which Jesus gives the Olivet Discourse in Mark chapter 13. And take your Bibles, open there now to Mark 13. For several weeks now, we've been studying this significant passage in Mark's Gospel. And here we have the second longest recorded message Jesus ever gave. And it has as its subject matter end times. But Jesus gives these words not just to fascinate people or to scare people, but to warn people about what's coming, but that they might turn and flee and be saved. This discussion, this this discourse takes place not long before his death. He's revealing to his disciples and to us things to come, things that must take place before he returns and reigns in righteousness. And specifically, he spends most most of his time detailing this future time period we know as the tribulation. It's a seven-year time of great calamity that falls upon the earth right before Jesus returns. In verses 5 through 13, Jesus tells us how that time period will begin. As we studied, it's marked by false teachers and wars, natural disasters, persecution, martyrdom, and apostasy. And things will be bad, but that's just the beginning. That's just how it starts. He calls that the beginning of the birth pangs. Things get much worse after this key turning point, which is found in verse 14. We studied this last week, but we can go ahead and read those verses again, 14 through 18. He says, But when you see the abomination of desolation, standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who's on the housetop must not go down, or go in to get anything out of his house. And the one who's in the field must not turn back to get his coat, But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that it may not happen in the winter. And we said this passage last time, mostly looking back to Daniel, which is where Jesus is drawing from. And Christ's teaching here intersects with what the rest of Scripture says about this figure you probably know as the Antichrist. He's this leader who during that tribulation time rises to world dominance And at the beginning of that seven-year period, he makes this covenant of peace with the nation of Israel. But halfway through, at the three-and-a-half-year mark, he breaks his covenant with Israel. Antichrist turns on Israel. Jerusalem is surrounded, invaded, and laid waste. He then enters the temple and commits what's called the abomination of desolation, where he he sets up an image of of himself in the temple to be worshipped as God among the world. This key event marks the midpoint of the tribulation and a real turning point because now the, the, the persecution, the terror of the Antichrist really heats up, as does the wrath of God, which is poured out on the earth during this time. This final period will be a time of great tribulation, Jesus says, and many will perish. Well, last week we made it through verse 18. 
primarily just trying to figure out this, this key turning point event that Jesus calls, what Daniel called, the abomination of desolation. But today that we want to keep moving and progress through verses 19 through 23. Let's see what else Jesus has to say about these final days. Of the tribulation in general, and especially of those last three and a half years, what else does Jesus reveal about that coming tribulation time? Now, Jesus doesn't tell us everything there is to know about the tribulation and the Olivet Discourse. He's more of giving a, a big picture overview of things to come. But we want to see what he does say, and perhaps you know, add in a few other points from here and there in Scripture as well. And to get things started, let's just see what Jesus says. Starting in Mark 13, and we'll read now verses 19 through 23. Mark 13, starting in verse 19. He says, after that, for those days will be a time of tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of of the creation, which God created until now and never will. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened those days. And then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed, behold, I've told you everything in advance. We want to use our time this morning to go through this passage and just round out the picture Jesus gives us of that coming tribulation time which culminates in his return. And it's really amazing how perfectly everything Jesus says here accords with other scriptures, both in the Old and the New Testament. We'll see some of that as well. But hopefully as we, as we study this, it will just continue to deepen your understanding of things to come. But that you too might heed the warning associated with these words that there is a flood of wrath coming. And beware and turn to Christ before it is too late. Well, that being said, from this passage, Mark 13, 19 through 23, let me, let me show you from this four marks of that coming tribulation time. Four marks of the tribulation. This is really building on what we've learned, just trying to take it a little bit deeper now, but four marks of the tribulation time. And the first is this. Number one, the character of that time the character of that time. And look again at verse 19. See what Jesus says there. Verse 19, he says, For those days will be a time of tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation, which God created, until now and never will. And unless the Lord has shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened those days. Now, the picture Jesus gives here, it's pretty clear, pretty straightforward, actually, although he doesn't give us that many details. It's rather brief, but the tribulation we know for sure will be a time of global catastrophe. It's on a scale never before seen. As we studied before, there's no way you can make what Jesus says in these two verses refer to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. The real time of tribulation will make that time look like a birthday party. The tribulation even surpasses the global flood in that it will last longer, there will be more suffering, and the body count will go through the roof. Now, already we've studied how the tribulation begins. He talked about that in verses 5 through 13. And what he says there parallels Revelation chapter 6, which talks about God's first judgments that he pours out on the earth at the beginning of the tribulation. They're called the seven seal judgments, Not like the animal, like the breaking of a seal. And in total, after that time, one-fourth of the world's population perishes. There's mass martyrdom. As many people who come to salvation confess Christ to save their soul. It's only surpassed by mass apostasy as many people deny Christ to save their skin. But in all that, that's just the beginning. That's just how it starts. So it really begs the question, how much worse does it get? What else happens that makes this time period, like Jesus says, the worst the planet has ever seen? How does this really get worse than the flood? What, what happens that makes this time period so bad? What, what's the character of this time? 
Well, apart from telling us how bad it will be, Jesus doesn't give us too many more details here. He's, he's again, just being a broad overview in the Olivet Discourse. But I want to help you by rounding out the picture of this time period. And for that, we, we turn to Revelation. That's pretty much why God gave the book of Revelation. So keep your finger in Mark and now go forward to Revelation chapter 16. Revelation chapter 16. Almost the entire book of Revelation is given over to telling of that future tribulation time. And the character of that time is there affirmed. It's pretty clear it's one of total death and destruction. The character of that time is, sadly, death and destruction. It's a time where God is raining down his judgment on the earth. And like Jesus said, when you see the details which come through in Revelation... It becomes very evident that he was right. Unless God has shortened those days, no one lives. No one is going to survive that time. No one would would live. Well, specifically, back in chapter 8 of Revelation, we learn about God's continuing judgments. It starts with these seven seal judgments. And those are followed by what are called the seven trumpet judgments. And they're so called because each one is announced by an angel who heralds a trumpet. And every time a trumpet is blown, another judgment falls on the earth. And you read chapters 8 and 9 and, and putting it together, basically it's talking about worldwide destruction. I mean, it, it's bad. We first learn that as the tribulation progresses with the first trumpet, a third of the earth's vegetation is burned up and there's massive famine. Next, a third of the sea is destroyed, including all sea life and sea vessels. A third of all fresh waters are then somehow contaminated, and then a third of the sky is darkened. In total, as the the trumpet judgments play out, an additional one-third of the population perishes. Now, all this is given in apocalyptic language. So how is that all going to be fulfilled? We don't know for sure. It could just be purely supernatural. Very possible. But I have to say, you know, I I don't know, we don't know, but that, that certainly could be describing nuclear warfare. Uh, at least we'll say it's no longer that surprising to us or would be that shocking if that's how it pans out because we can see how one-third of the earth will just be burned up and destroyed in that manner. We don't know, but that's still what he says it will come. Anyway, but even this is not the end. The havoc that's wreaked on the earth continues to progress, and out of the seven trumpet judgments come seven final bowl judgments, so-called because... Angels are seen holding golden bowls filled with the wrath of God, and each one, one by one, is poured out on the earth. And these are even worse than everything that came before. These come at the very end of the tribulation, right at the very end before Christ returns, and they take the level of destruction and death to the next level. If Jesus delayed any longer in returning, no one would live. No one would survive these final judgments. And once you get the full force of the wrath of God here and read it for yourself. So if you're in Revelation 16, follow along. It says in verse 1, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went out and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like blood, like that of a dead man. And every living thing in the sea died. Not talking about a third anymore, but the whole thing. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. We'll come back to verses 5 later. Look at verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has the power over these plagues. And they did not repent, so as to give him glory. Verse 10, Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sorns. They did not repent of their deeds. And then verse 12, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up, so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. 
following, following all this, you have the battle that you know of as Armageddon, where the world literally joins together to fight God one last time. But it's really the definition of futility, because right after this, Jesus returns. And as Revelation 19 says, when Jesus comes, he personally kills and judges every evildoer left on the planet including the Antichrist. Revelation 19.15 says of Christ, from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. So you put it together now and what, what's the character of that time? It, it's bad. It's death. It's destruction. It's calamity on the earth. And we find that what Jesus says in Mark 13 Although it's brief, it's, it's dead on. That it will be a time worse than any other time on the planet. And if it lasted any longer, no one would live. That's how bad things will get. It's an unparalleled time in human history. It makes all wars and disasters before then looks like, look like child's play. Now, as we already alluded to, though, all of these disasters that come upon the earth are not accidents. The tribulation and all all these calamities, it's not some unfortunate act of Mother Earth. Rather, they come as the deliberate act of Father God. And this leads to number two, the purpose of that time. From the nature of that time to number two, the purpose of that time. And if your thumbs in Mark 13, you can flip back and he says in verse 20, once again, unless the Lord has shortened those days, No life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened those days. And just from the way Jesus words this, he's making it clear that God's in control of this time. God's in control. It's not an accident. The tribulation is not caused by some random asteroid. Everything occurs according to God's timetable, and everything happens according to God's purpose. He's, He's in control of this. And that being the case, it makes us wonder, well, then what, what exactly is his purpose in doing all of this? Why has God ordained so much death and destruction to come upon the earth during this seven-year seven period of time? Well, what, what's he trying to get at? What's his purpose? Well, we've already pretty much made clear one of the main purposes, and that is judgment. Judgment. Now, the Bible often says God is slow to anger. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in loving kindness. God's patience is, is truly supernatural. In fact, ever since the fall, God has patiently endured the sin and the rebellion of men and angels. Even though they deserve a just and instant and full judgment, God delays his wrath, giving humans at least time to repent and to be saved. And granted, it's appointed for men to die once and then comes judgment. Everyone will be judged. But God gives so many people so much time and therefore so many opportunities to repent, to seek him, to turn to Christ and be saved. But starting in the tribulation, the days of God's patience and tolerance, they start to run out. The sands through the hourglass, they start to run out. God hates sin. It is an offense to his holy name and his character. It's an abomination. And he must judge sin. Exodus 34, 7 says, God will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And being perfectly just, he must punish sin. And for all those who have rejected Christ, the offer of of salvation, they have nothing left coming for them but judgment. And during the tribulation, God will start to let the world feel the weight of their sin by giving them just a taste of his eternal wrath. And as the wicked suffer, they will simply be getting what they deserve. In the back of Revelation 16, which we just looked at, it again describes God's final judgments on the world, these bowls of wrath. And as the third angel pours out his bowl, turns the the waters into blood, another angel in heaven cries out and says this. Listen to Revelation 16, verses 5 through 8. He says, And I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O holy one. 
because you judge these things. For they poured out the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. Verse 7, And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. When God judges, heaven rejoices because he's just being just. He's just doing what he's supposed to do, being righteous. He's putting an end to evil and those who do it. Paul, the Apostle Paul, also speaks of this coming tribulation time a lot in 2 Thessalonians. And Paul also pinpoints the reason, the purpose behind that time period. And listen to this, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12. Why does this time period come? What's the purpose? He says in verse 12, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. So the first purpose of the time of tribulation is clear and is judgment. It's judgment. But that's not the only purpose to this time. You know, if God wanted to, he could just do it all instantly. You send Jesus back right away. Everyone is judged instantaneously. In fact, that's what happens in the end. He doesn't need this seven-year period or seven year period of wrath on the earth. So it kind of makes us wonder, is there another purpose behind this time period? Is God trying to accomplish something else during these seven years? And the answer to that is yes, there is another purpose. He is trying to accomplish something else. The second purpose, the second main purpose to this tribulation time is redemption. Redemption. It's astonishing, even though countless people are deceived and hardened during the tribulation, countless are also saved and redeemed. You know, the tribulation will be the time period of the greatest revival the planet has ever seen. Now, it appears that almost everyone who comes to faith in Christ will soon die right after that for their faith in Christ. But nonetheless, God will be saving multitudes amidst all that destruction. More specifically, during the tribulation, God will be completing his work of redeeming the nation of Israel. More specifically, when it comes to his redemption, he will turn his sights back on Israel as a nation. The nation of Israel plays a very prominent role in the tribulation time. Remember last week, we learned about this prophecy given to Daniel of 70 weeks. He's referring to 490 years about Daniel's people and his city, the Jews and Jerusalem. And it's no wonder the tribulation, it is the 70th week. It's that last week, the last seven years, and it has, that's one of its primary focuses, Daniel's people, namely the Jews. The Jewish character of the tribulation is very clear in the Old and New Testament. Back in Jeremiah 37, for example, chapter 30, verse 7, the tribulation is described as the time of Jacob's distress. It's a time where God... He rains down his final discipline on his chosen nation of Israel for their sin and rebellion. But as the verse continues, they will be saved from it. They are not destroyed, annihilated. They are disciplined, but then they are saved. God will break their hardened hearts, surely through all the the suffering that goes on. And finally, they will turn back to him and to Christ. They will accept Jesus as their Messiah. Zechariah chapter 12 says a lot about this. Verse 10 looks forward to that time. It says this, Zechariah 12:10. God says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. At the very end, when Christ returns, they will finally look on him whom they pierced and mourn because they realize he is the Messiah, but they will also cry out and be saved. Throughout the tribulation, many Jews are saved. You may hear this number 144,000 in Revelation. That's talking about the number of Jews, special Jews who are saved, and they're sealed, they're protected as God's special witnesses during that time. 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. You learn about them in Revelation chapter 7. 
But it's not till the very end of the tribulation, after enduring great persecution, that the Jews as a nation, they will finally identify Jesus as their Christ, their Messiah. They will accept him as Lord and Savior. They will cry out to him right as they are about to be destroyed in the final battle. And then Jesus will show up. He will return. He will deliver them from their enemies. He will save them and be their king. For now, the nation of Israel is hardened in unbelief. Their branch has been cut off from God's people, the tree of God's people. But God is not finished with them. Due to all those unconditional promises he made with them in in the Old Testament as a nation, they will be grafted back in once again, once they are broken and humbled. And that is the second main purpose of the tribulation time. You can't ignore the, the Jewish character. and This is, after all, Daniel's 70th week. And it has, as one of its main purposes, redemption. Many Gentiles, but specifically the nation of Israel. Through wrath, God will painfully till the hardened soil of Israel's heart until they're finally ready to receive Jesus as Lord. So long story short, the tribulation, it's really the culmination of God's work of judgment and redemption. And God, God is doing that work right now. He's giving out his judgment here and now and giving out his redemption here and now. But in the tribulation, we really see an explosion of both of these. It's the culmination of his judgment and his redemption. Sadly, though, we have to say that the majority of people alive during that time, they don't find his redemption. They find his judgment. And that's because, number three, the danger of that time. It's because of, number three, the danger of that time. Back at verse 21, Mark 13, Jesus continues and he says, And then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Now, if you haven't figured it out already that the time of tribulation, it's one of unparalleled deception. We already learned back in in verse 6 of the Olive Discourse, Jesus said that tribulation time will begin with just a, a huge number of false messiahs. All these people will spring up and they'll claim to be Jesus, come back as the Messiah, and they'll actually lead many people astray. We know of one false messiah in particular called the antichrist the beast you know he's he's the main one he deceives the whole world actually there will be many little guys popping up claiming to be jesus come back and actually lots of people will believe them now when you you read about that you might find it shocking or hard to believe and you think "Eh, come on how can that be how can people actually be duped into believing that crazy guy over there is actually jesus come back i mean who's really going to buy that But you have to understand that the pervasiveness of deception during the tribulation. And consider first the ignorance of false believers. The ignorance of false believers. Now at the beginning of the tribulation, the true church, true believers in Christ, they're raptured. They're taken out of the earth. But believe me, many so-called Christians will remain. The earth is populated with millions, if not billions of phony believers and of those left behind many will fall away but many will continue on in a counterfeit church and these people they're ignorant of god's word they know enough just to be deceived by false teachers they will know that all this wrath it's a sign of christ coming back but being unregenerate they're easy picking for all of these false messiahs and to make matters worse the tribulation will actually see the return of signs and wonders. Now, I know, we know that some people today claim to perform signs and wonders. But look, no one's calling fire down from heaven. But in the tribulation, they will be. There will be unmistakable miracles that even unbelievers will not deny. In fact, the miracles will convince unbelievers to go after and believe these false messiahs. 
Again, in 2 Thessalonians, Paul, he's talking about that tribulation time. And he says this of the Antichrist. Just listen to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. He says, Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accordance with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. We learn that the Antichrist will actually achieve his world dominance through signs and false wonders. Much like Jesus says in verse 22, these other false Christs will use signs and wonders to lead people astray. That's what the Antichrist will do. And there's actually more details given about that in Revelation 13. You can just listen along. We actually learn there's a third character here. You've got Satan. You have the Antichrist. But then there's a third figure called the false prophet. And together, the three of them, it's like an unholy trinity. They go together. And this guy, this false prophet, he's the mouthpiece for the Antichrist. He's like a counterfeit Elijah. And actually, he's the one who wields signs and wonders. And through them, he leads most people to worship the Antichrist. Revelation 13, 13 says, Of the false prophet, he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives, deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast. So our question is, you know, what is, what is the danger of this tribulation time? The answer is deception. And why is the deception so powerful? Well, because first, the ignorance of false believers. And second, false signs and wonders. But there's even more. Third, you have the activity of Satan and demons. The activity of Satan and demons. If you read read earlier in Revelation 13, we learn that both the Antichrist and the false prophet, they really derive their power and authority from, from Satan himself. They are satanically inspired and empowered. Satan is behind it all, and his deceptive influence reaches its zenith during the tribulation time. In fact, that's one of the reasons the tribulation is so bad. Back in Revelation 12, really interesting passage, we learn that at the halfway point of the tribulation, Satan and all of his fallen angels, they're permanently cast down to the earth. They're forced to dwell on the earth. You may not have known this, but Right now, believe it or not, Satan and demons, they actually have access to God in heaven, to God's throne room and God's presence in heaven. But at the halfway point of the tribulation, that changes. They're cast down and forced to dwell only on the earth. Revelation 12:9 says, And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And after this, there's rejoicing in heaven because the accuser of the brethren has been cast down. But it spells bad news for those on earth because now, like in the day of Christ, the earth is overrun by Satan and demons. And so verse 12, he says, Woe to the earth and to the sea because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he only has a short time. So the point is this. You throw in Satan's activity, and now it's really not surprising. It's not surprising that so many people are deceived so profoundly in the tribulation. You want to know why so many are deceived? Well, unbelievers are ignorant. There's signs and wonders. And then you have Satan and demons running amok. The whole world will be led astray, minus the elect. But it actually still gets a little bit worse. It still gets a little bit worse. And what do I mean? Well, the danger of the tribulation, it's deception. A satanically driven deception. But that deception is exacerbated by a divine hardening. A divine hardening that takes place during that time. Listen to this. This is an extreme verse, so just follow along. But 
It's again back to Paul, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, talking about the tribulation. Listen to what he says. He says, For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. It's basically saying, again, God's mercy, God's compassion, it's all over. He's talking about the tribulation time. And during that time, there's going to be countless people who they reject God and the gospel. They take pleasure in wickedness and they worship the Antichrist. And because of that, they're hardened in their unbelief. And so God merely seals their fate. He seals them in judgment. They're given no more chances to repent, but their judgment is sealed and God basically allows them to be deceived and damned. God does not deceive, but he basically hands the world over to Satan and to the Antichrist as the means of his judgment, as a consequence of their rejection of the gospel. The wicked and the rebellious, they have persisted in choosing sin over God for so long And finally he says, okay, you can have it. Take your sin and all that's worth. And they get it. You put that all together and now it really seems hopeless. And it is. It's a hopeless time. You have the unholy trinity, Satan, Antichrist, the false prophet. They're conspiring together to deceive the whole world. And then you have God himself and he he lets it happen. He basically gives them the authority and they succeed in deceiving the whole world. Of course, that all happens according to God's plan for his judgment, for his redemption. But it really seems hopeless for those who are alive during that time. It makes you wonder, how can anyone be saved? How can anyone be saved during that time? It seems like it's impossible. With all that deception and Satan and demons, Like, who can can be saved? Is there any hope? Well, there actually is some hope. Lastly, number four, The hope of that time. Let's cover this. The hope of that time. Right now, in this age, the New Testament describes Satan as the God of this world. Of course, God is God, but right now, by God's sovereign plan, Satan, he's in power and he's in authority over this earth. He's at work deceiving the nations and he's blinding people that they would not see and believe the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says this of Satan, talking about right now. It says, In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It's happening right now. Satan is right now blinding the minds of the unbelieving that they would not see the gospel. That's what he does. And the point is, in the tribulation, That goes to the extreme. His blinding power goes through the roof. And because of that, there's no hope. Humanly speaking, there's no hope. But there's still hope in God. Though people are held captive by sin, God can divinely intervene and set them free. And that's what God does. 2 Timothy 2, verse 25 He says, With gentleness, correct those who are in opposition, if, perhaps, God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. And during the tribulation, really in any age, all people, they're bound in Satan's chains and blinded by Satan, except for those who, whom God calls and chooses and sets free by his divine power. And that, that's the only hope, though. It's the hope of election, which is administered through faith. That's the hope. It's election and faith. And so it's no wonder, then, that in the Olivet Discourse, back in Mark 13, Jesus talks about election all over the place. Did you catch it? Mark 13, look at verse 20. It says, unless the Lord has shortened those days, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened those days. 
Verse 22, it says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Of course, it's not possible by definition, but again, a reference to the elect. And then verse 27, for next week he says, And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds. It's all over the place. The same goes for the book of Revelation. It's just all over the place. For example, Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. He says, all who dwell on the earth will worship him, That the Antichrist. Who, who worships him? Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the Lamb who has been slain. Who are those who are lost during the tribulation? Everyone whom God did not choose. That's just what it says. Now look, we don't have a time for a detailed exposition of the doctrine of election. I did a several-part sermon series on that back when we preached through 1 Peter, so you can get that on our website if you want to learn about that. But here's the bottom line. In the tribulation especially, man's internal depravity is at its worst, and man's external deception is at its worst. So that being the case, who can be saved? No one. Now, on their own, who will choose God? No one. And that's how it always is. In any age, that's how it is. And the Bible, though, clearly teaches that because of that, God elects and he calls and he chooses some. Because if he didn't, no one would ever be saved. Zero people would enter the kingdom if left to themselves. God must call. He must choose. People are still responsible. The scripture everywhere affirms that we are responsible to repent and to believe. But behind the scenes, God must first open the eyes of those blinded by Satan and break their chains, that they might be free to choose him, free to come to him. And God intends to do this for some he has chosen. They're referred to as the elect or the chosen ones. It's true of every age. It's true of the tribulation. And that fact alone, though, gives monumental hope. It's one of the reasons God reveals this truth for the sake of hope, that even in that time, you have proof positive that despite all of the death and the destruction and the calamity and the deception, that the gospel will still go out and it will work. People will be saved. Lots of people will be saved. For God's power is greater than Satan's deception. If there is ever a time you would think evangelism would be worthless, it would be during the tribulation. But the exact opposite is true. Because God's power will be at work, his calling, his choosing, and it will be the most fruitful time in human history. Well, there you have it. It's more of a, a rounded out picture of this time period we know of as the tribulation. You have the character of that time, death and destruction. You have the purpose of that time, judgment and redemption. You have the danger of that time, deception and hardening. And you have the hope of that time, election and faith. And in all, Jesus closes this section in Mark 13 by saying, verse 23, Take heed, behold, I've told you everything in advance. We will pick up from here next time. But, but already this calls for a response. He says, take heed, turn your ear, incline your hearts to what he's revealing. Jesus has given you a revelation of things to come and it includes some very bad news. Calamity, destruction, deception, death, eternal judgment. But for those who humble themselves and repent of their sins and turn to Christ, there's also some profound good news. Election, faith, protection, and eternal salvation. And whether you live to see these days or not, how will you respond to Jesus now? God's wrath and judgment comes to everyone one way or another, unless you are found safe in Christ. The flood of God's wrath, it is coming. But heed these words. See the coming signs and run to the ark before the flood of death or tribulation comes and swallows you up. Make sure you know Christ today before
these days come and it for you might be too late. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for our time in the word this morning, hearing from Christ and elsewhere. This is rounded out picture of of this time of wrath on earth. And that's what it is. It's a time of your holy wrath being poured out on men, on this world filled of rebellious sinners. Lord, that's us. We're rebellious sinners. We're, We're no different. We're no better. And we know we deserve wrath. But that's why for us here, we we thank and praise you all the more because we know the gospel, the good news that you sent Jesus to die on the cross and to bear that wrath for us. That's what he was doing on the cross. He was enduring your infinite holy wrath against our sin. And as Jesus paid that price, now that we believe in him and follow him, we, we can go free. We can be forgiven, our slate wiped clean. In fact, we can be made righteous by the blood of the Lamb. It's a profound good news that we have. And we thank you that we have passed out of wrath into blessing through Christ. We thank you for him. Lord, though we know so many don't know him and they are still under the waterfall of your wrath, we pray for their salvation. We pray for our lost loved ones. We need to be praying more for them that you would show your mercy and you would call and choose them. We know these things are in your hands, but we are called, we are responsible both to pray and to believe. And and so we will do, we will do what we are called to do. Nonetheless, Lord, your judgment is just. These days are coming. Jesus said these things, they must take place. They cannot be stopped. And in the end, we we will worship you. When you save some, we will worship you for your grace and for your mercy. And even when you judge others, we will worship you for your, your justice and your righteousness. You are God, you know. You're the infinite and the almighty. We just need to bow down before you and take heed of these words. To make sure we are right with you through faith in Christ. We want to do that now and always and offer up our lives to you. Thank you for our time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.